before jumping into this uh, text with you, I meant to pray for the fish fry. I even brought my tickets with me to remind me to pray for the fish fry, and I didn't. So sometimes I get things wrong at work, just like you do probably at your workplace. Uh, but uh, do pray for our fish fry on Tuesday. And if you still want tickets, uh, Sean Wilkins is your, your point man for that. But the info's in the bulletin. The other thing I, I think it's probably appropriate to, to mention just now that I'm taking a, a minute here for more in-house kinds of things is uh, you get an email. If, if you're a member or regular attender of, or first of Ann, you should get a, wor- a worship email each week that prepares you for this service. Uh, we recognize that we're trying to build a repertoire of music now that our entire church can sing. And so in service to that, this email goes out, and it has links, and you can click on the songs that we're going to sing each Sunday so that if a song is unfamiliar to you, you can learn that song, and you can come into the room and not feel like, oh, gosh, I don't know how to sing this. So that's a service that our worship department is uh, rendering. Look for that email each week and click on the links if you're unfamiliar with the song you learn it you come in here you're able to more robustly participate and that's what we want from everybody we don't want anybody being silent during one song and now oh this is my song I'll sing that one Uh, let's not do that let's be better than that in the let's be better than that department um, if an usher asks you to uh, make room for someone please understand we're not trying to offend you Um, It's come to my attention. We've actually had some people leave in a little bit of a huff because an usher asked them to move over. Um, I don't know what to do with that other than just say, please don't be like that. Uh, Yeah, you know, I mean, we're all kind of on the same page on that one, I think, except for the few uh, who have uh, taken that as some kind of an offense. But uh, if an usher is asking you, people are late to service for many reasons, sometimes uh, they have very good reasons for walking in late and need to find a seat. And also, just be aware of people around you who seem to be looking for a seat. Uh, make room for them. That's just being hospitable within the body. One more thing uh, to address with you, and then we'll get into the sermon. Since September, since we've all been in this room together, uh, one of the things we've, we've attempted is just some community-building kinds of things. And there's been an unintended consequence of one of the things that we've, we've done, which has also come to my attention. And I, and I think this is, is something that um, we, we need to address. And that is that uh, when we join hands or touch elbows, as I've talked about it during the benediction, one of the things we didn't take into account is that there are people who have had traumatic events in their background and unwanted touch, and, and reaching out uh, and being touched by a stranger can create for, for them some great anxiety. And if you're of a mind listening to me and you're kind of groaning inside and going, oh, why should we limit what we do for the sake of a few? Well, you're thinking like an American. Uh, you need to think like a Christian. And that's exactly what Christians do. If we recognize that something we're doing, though it is, it is for a good reason, is unintentionally but nevertheless causing stress and anxiety for somebody at the end of our worship service, then we don't need to do it. It's just that simple. So if, if you're with your family members, you want to join hands with them, that's totally fine. If you know the person well next to you and you want to take their hand during benediction, that's fine too. But in, in conveying that from the pulpit, I often forget, because this is sort of a piece of furniture I'm used to, but I, I often forget that when I say something from this place, people take it as a divine edict. And so at the end, when they hear, you know, let's take hands, and 
they, they hear, well, I got to do that, you know, or, or somehow I'm, I'm doing something wrong. And, and so we, we want to, as much as possible on our part, we want to be a place that uh, is respectful and, and sensitive in appropriate ways to things we ought to be sensitive about. And that's something that we should be sensitive about. So all that to say, I will, I will no longer direct you during the benediction time to uh, join hands uh, and, or touch elbows or get close to somebody somehow. Uh, we'll go back to the way we were doing it before, which will just be focused on receiving our benediction. All right, is everybody okay with that? All right, thank you. We're in Romans. We're in a series. It's the first three chapters. You see there uh, the, the title and the text. John Reed read the text for us. And it's, it's really, it's a complex text. As John Reed read it, he read it very well. And yet it, it's a text that you have to sit with. You have to think about it. And what we've been looking at is uh, sin in two categories from three directions over six weeks. And we're now in week five with this. And we're in the second category, sin as as self-righteousness, and we're looking at it from the second direction, sin as self-righteousness against oneself. And again, verses 6 to 16 of Romans 2 is, is a difficult passage in that you read it and you think, well, what, what's Paul saying? Especially in like verses 6 and 7 and 10. And what's he not saying? Verses 14 and 15. So looking at this passage, verses 6 to 16, you pick up immediately. What you immediately can tell reading it is that he's drawing a contrast between Jew and Greek. He calls Gentiles Greeks in verses 9 and 10. Gentile is the word he uses in verse 14. Same difference. And the contrast is between the Jew having the law of God given through Moses, the Mosaic law, uh, having that law, and the Gentile not having the law, And yet having the law did not mean the Jew always obeyed it. And not having the law didn't mean the Gentile always disobeyed it. This is verse 15. They, the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That's not the law in the heart in the sense of redemption, but the law on the heart in the sense of conscience. We've spoke to this already in this series that there are certain things we just all know morally and know that we know and, and know that we cannot know. People can still deny uh, certain moral absolutes, uh, universals, but, but uh, even in that denial, if the same thing was to happen to them, uh, they wouldn't like it very much. It's the imprint of conscience. So Paul is giving this complex argument but really to establish a very simple point. It's a simple point, and then Paul was a little bit of a complex thinker at times. This is one of those places where he's making a simple point, and the simple point is God's judgment on all people is based on our works. This is taught all through the New Testament, not just here. But this is actually, this knowledge that God judges us based on our works is actually in our conscience as well. This is why he says in verse 15 that Conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse us, uh, uh, accuse us or defend us in some translations. This is by conscience. But what you really need to get here, looking at a complex passage, the simple point is the certainty of God's judgment on all people based on our works. That's the point that's being made here. The judgment of God is inevitable. Now, we saw this last week in verse 5. Look back up at verse 5 where he talks about hard and impenitent hearts. He's speaking more to a a Jewish context 
People who have the law here, he says, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The day of wrath. That's judgment day, as we call it. And you get the reference to that day again in verse 16. On that day, verse 16, that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There's a judgment day coming. Jesus taught about it. Paul taught about it. It's part of the gospel. He even says so in verse 16. He uses that word in that linkage. Part of the gospel is a message of judgment. The judgment of God being righteous and being inevitable. Because he judges all people by our works. But there's already also been a judgment day. We know this as believers in the gospel. The judgment of God is inevitable because of sin. This is the simple point. But you can face that judgment either at the cross or at the end. The judgment of God is inevitable because of sin, but you can face that judgment either at the cross, that's the judgment day that's already been, or at the end, the judgment day coming. And the judgment of God is based on works. Verse 6 says that very plainly. So either what we do is we get Jesus' works applied to us or we go trusting in ourselves. But to trust in ourselves is the way of self-righteousness against oneself. Because Paul's saying here, it's not going to work. So in the opening chapters of Romans, Romans is a very tight argument from start to finish. And so we're, we're, we're in the mind of somebody who, who understands uh, righteousness very well. Makes the case for unrighteousness. Predominantly the Gentile world, but the Jews also participated in that. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 last week. But also the case for self-righteousness. That all of this, the universal need for the gospel of Christ, the need for grace from God. Why? Because we're all under sin, Jew and Greek alike, or Jew and Gentile alike, just to put the world in two categories. But because Jews had unique history with God, Here in chapter 2, Paul addresses the hope, their hope, an ethnic hope, a Jewish hope of exemption from the rest of the world's condemnation. Will Jewishness exempt me from the rest of the world's condemnation? And the answer is no. And that's a most surprising answer if you're one of Paul's original Jewish readers and hearers of this letter. The nice Jewish boy faces judgment at the end, as do many a nice Gentile boy, if he bypasses the cross. And for the nice Jewish boy, the cross, his bypassing it, was likely due to his belief that his history with God, his having the law, his having the patriarchs and the promises of God and the prophets of God meant Jews escape final judgment. But Paul says here in chapter 2, it isn't escaped for having the law. It is an escape for having history with God. And besides, didn't God always, or frequently, often I should say, didn't he often judge his people throughout their history? The Old Testament records this. And why did he? Verse 11, God shows no partiality. Now that required some explanation for the Jewish hearer. It's a shock to his system back then. And also for uh, the more orthodox today. But this explanation is being unfurled in chapter 2. And while it's complex, it's also important. So let's try to, let's try to simplify verses 6 to 16, this section, without dumbing it down. 
And I think the way to simplify it without dumbing it down is it may be helpful to think of things here in terms of binding and blinding. Binding and blinding. That is to say this. You get this contrast in this passage. The Jews were bound to the law of God given through Moses, but often blind to how they didn't keep it. Right? Whereas Gentiles were blind to the law in the sense of ignorant of it because they were Gentiles, not Jews, and so they had not received the law of God as the Jews had as a constituted people. And yet they were bound to it. Gentiles were bound to the law in a way, verse 14 says, when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, verse 14, they're a law to themselves even though they do not have the law, the law of Moses. So binding and blinding. This is the the simplest way I know to put this little chunk of text that we're in. Binding and blinding. The Jews were bound to the law of Moses, but often blind to how they didn't keep it. Whereas Gentiles were blind to the law in the sense they were ignorant of it, and yet bound to it when, verse 14 says, by nature do what the law requires. Now that's then and there. Let's bring it into now and here because there's a further complication For us, reading Romans today, as Gentiles who have a knowledge of the law, unlike our first century ancestors, who are referred to in chapter 1, verse 14, as barbarians. He says in chapter 1, verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. Our ancestors, as I said to you a few weeks ago, were running, most of us in the room, were running around naked in the wilds of Europe while the Jews were handling the law of God. And so, we've had a Bible a long time, and, and we know about the law of Moses, don't we? For example, take the Ten Commandments. The essence of Old Testament law, as we think of it, is the Ten Commandments. Now, I, I know that Jesus said the essence of the Old Testament law was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the Ten Commandments is the moral code of all that law of Moses. You get the Ten Commandments as kind of the shorthand. And when we think of Mosaic law, what do we think of immediately? We think of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments came into Western culture by way of Christianity, not Judaism, which is no slight at Judaism, just fact. Judaism did not convert the West. Christianity did. Just giving you history here. Stay with me. But wherever Christianity went, what went with it? The Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets who were the old covenant enforcers. You, you think of the prophets, we often think of the, the guys who are getting these visions of the future, but so much of the prophets is taking Israel and Judah, the Jewish people, back to what God had given them, the law of Moses. They were covenant enforcers in that sense. So when we read Romans 2 about Gentiles not having the law, Gentile ignorance of the law as a binding system on them, that's not been our experience as churched Gentiles living in the West. Old Testament law has never been a binding system on us, no. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Paul is going to say, Christ is the end of the law so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. So we've never been under the law of Moses as a system, but we're familiar with it. By plight, 
And Romans 2 is giving a plight of a people. By plight, we are actually more like the Jews, Paul aims at here, in that we have our Bibles and so many churches, and we can feel ourselves to be, as churched Americans, particularly as churched Americans in the South, the Holy Land, the God's country, we can feel like the Jews in Paul's time felt themselves to be, that is to be insiders with God, to be relatively good people in our not being terrorists, in our not being as bad as others who commit crimes and do really horrible things. We're good people and hopefully God agrees. Many of our neighbors look at things this way and some of you in this room also Look at things this way. And listen, it is true to say the Bible doesn't treat all sin exactly the same. We are all sinners, but not all sin is the same. That is true, and I've already made this case in uh, this series already. It's also true to say that when God judges people, he takes into account our backgrounds and our heritage and our exposure and our advantages and our opportunities. And where do we base this? Passage like Matthew 11. You go back and read Matthew 11. I actually taught Matthew 11 either the final Sunday in December or the first Sunday in January. I don't recall. But Matthew 11 is a place where Jesus pronounces judgment, condemns certain cities for not repenting, though he had visited them and did miraculous things in those cities. But he told those those cities, those place names in Matthew 11, their judgment would be worse because he had done so much work in their midst and they didn't turn to him. It could be that judgment day is worse for Memphis than for San Francisco. When you take into account the gospel opportunities and the church infrastructure of our city. It could be that Judgment Day is worse for Birmingham than Beijing. And, and Cecil, we've been calling it Birmingham because we're in proximity. It's Birmingham for you. It could be that Judgment Day is worse for Birmingham, England than Karachi, the capital of Pakistan. It could be that Judgment Day is worse for Little Rock than it is for Dubai. Now, I am, uh, you, you're free to disagree with me on this. I'm merely suggesting something that could be. I'm not previewing what will be, except that Jesus taught the judgment of God is inevitable and in some sense it, it can happen by degrees of severity, but inevitable for all because of sin, sin in passive as well as aggressive forms. We can either face God in our sin at the cross, that judgment day, or we can face him at the end. But if anyone could venture the claim to be exempt from this, it was, it was the Jewish people. And what Paul does in chapter 2 is he denies that claim. And he's not being anti-Semitic in doing so. In fact, he's being true to the gospel as a Jew himself. And when you get over to chapter 9, Paul has this great burst of pathos for his people. And he says, I wish that I could be cut off from Christ if in that act my people would be saved. But as an apostle of Jesus, he was sent to teach this leveling doctrine that we get in chapters 1 and chapter 2 leading up to chapter 3. 
And yet, what if, let's play a what if, what if a Jew or even a Gentile could keep the law of God flawlessly? What if that was possible? Well, Paul plays along with this in verses 7 and 10. Look at the text. In verses 7 and 10, we're told you'd get eternal life. To those who by patience, verse 7, in well-doing, some translations to those who by persistence in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 10 essentially says the same. Glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And yet, when you plug this in to verses 1 through 5, when you keep this within its context, recall Paul says, we saw this last week, that the people who know better don't always do the better they know. They, in fact, will do the very things they know to be condemned ways of life and know they're doing it. So we're not yet talking about unintentional sin. We just have more sophisticated ways of self-deception and covering ourselves when we know better. But for sake of argument, looking at verses 7 and 10, for sake of argument, if a Jew, if a Gentile, because it says first for the Jew, then for the Greek, if you could keep the law of God flawlessly, what would follow? You'd get eternal life. Here in this context, eternal life is looking forward past death to the abode of God, living there with him, where you get the big welcome. All y'all, because he's partial to Southerners, we already know that, we've established that in this sermon. Welcome all y'all, you made it, you did good, you've earned this, congratulations. Now why does that sound not quite right? Because we know what's coming in Romans later in chapter 3. If your Bible is open, looking at chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Look down at verse 20 of chapter 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now that's really key. Because, is there a contradiction here? Does Paul say in chapter 2, you can get eternal life for yourself, you just work hard enough. And then he says in chapter 3, don't even try. Nah. No, what's going on? There's no contradiction because what's going on in chapter 2 in verses 6 and 7 is you're, you're being given a hypothetical. The point is being made in verse 6. Verse 6 of chapter 2, he will render to each one according to his works. So if you could, this is implied, if you could, verse 7, by patience and well-doing, glory, honor, immortality, You'd get eternal life. Why? Because, verse 6, he renders to each one according to his works. The point being made here is judgment is according to works. God judges us by our works, full stop. This is why we need Christ's work applied to us. Looking at this passage from this side of the cross, judgment is on our works. This is how God does it. And if our actions, if our works... That is the way we relate, the way we, we do life morally, what we believe, all of that goes into works. If our works are all good all the time, great. 
We're in with God. But an omniscient God from whom nothing is hidden, knows everything about everyone, even the secret things. He knows us better than we know ourselves, in fact. This is why there's talk in Scripture about unintentional sin. There was even provision in the Mosaic Law for for offering sacrifices for, for the sins I didn't even know about. But God knows they're there. And to offer that sacrifice was to agree with him. Lord, there's things about me that are wrong that you know that I'm not even aware of. That's how deep my sin goes. We talked about this a little bit last week in the context of greed. Sin as self-righteousness against oneself is the hardest to detect. It is. And how would we? How would we go about detecting self-righteousness against ourselves. It's hard to detect, but we begin to detect it when we try so hard to do good and yet find, even as we do that, the, the effort of trying to do good, trying to be better, is stirring up worse in us. And this sends us into a personal crisis of, I can't believe this stuff is in me. Or it sends us into covering for ourselves by doing more and more and more good works in in this attempt to sort of escape myself rather than sending us to the cross. This is how we detect sin as self-righteousness against ourselves. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, only those who've tried really hard to be good know how really bad they are. Only those who've tried really hard to be good know how bad they really are. I've had the experience in preaching over a couple of decades now, a little longer than that, uh, that if I'm, if I'm preaching in a passage that deals with a sin, any sin, but uh, if, if I'm dealing in that kind of a passage and I'm, I'm, I'm doing the work that I do in, in going through a passage of Scripture, through the years I've had the experience often of experiencing temptation that very week in that very passage that I'm working. And you go, how could that be? You're preaching it. You're immersed in the Word of God about it. Yeah, and thereby know well the wrongness of action X, whatever it is. But as John Owen, the old Puritan, used to put it, grace changes the nature of man, but nothing changes the nature of sin. Sin remains what it is. It always wants what it wants. And so sin is self-righteousness against oneself. It's the hardest to detect because we begin to detect it. How we detect it is is when we, we try so hard to do good and yet find we're stirring up the bad and this sends us into, it's it's self-righteous and then it sends us into a personal crisis of, I can't believe this is in me. Or it sends us to covering ourselves. It's in me, but I'm going to hide it. I'm going to act like it's not there. Instead of sending us to the cross. Colson and I were watching a BBC Nature uh, program uh, the other night. And it, and it featured, it was different vignettes from around the world. And there are these giant catfish over in the southwest of France... And they are, um, they are lying in wait. You remember this, Colson? They lie in wait 
at the surface of this particular pond where uh, pigeons come to drink and the catfish attack the pigeons. What's remarkable about about this is that catfish are bottom feeders. They haven't been known to hunt at the surface, much less for birds. But you got catfish leaping out of the water, grabbing pigeons and taking them down under the water to eat them. I hope we don't serve any of those at this fish fry. Beware the Frenchy catfish, right? You don't know where he's been. See, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Just when you're trying to be good is when some of that bottom feeder stuff comes up to the surface where it doesn't look like it's supposed to be. Where would all these catfish come from? I'm oversimplifying this somewhat, but when we're honest, we know we haven't always done it right. Morally, relationally, even when we've tried, especially when we've tried... And we know we haven't always done it wrong either. So we're not engaging in some, don't hear this as some sort of cynical, pessimistically, unrealistic review of ourselves. But we've not always been right. We've not always been wrong. But we, we have been wrong at times we've tried to be right. And we have felt at times we're being right the pull to wrongness in us. Do we not? Ask anybody who's dealt with addiction, who's trying to walk in recovery but relapses. It is because they never feel more tempted than when they're trying to get it right. And there's a component of of illness to addiction. Let me hasten to add that. It is a disorder. It's a disorder of volition, though. There, There is choices made and involved in that. So the point stands. Ask anybody who's dieted. You'd swear chocolate cake can actually speak to you from across the room. I miss you, it says. And chocolate cake is suddenly everywhere. You can't drive through your neighborhood and some little girl's out there selling chocolate cake. You know, where did she come from? Ask anybody who's dealt with anything besetting and struggling, any besetting sin and in grief and disgust with another fall into it, they've said to God, I'll never do that again. And they, and they do everything right after that. They confess to somebody. They set up accountability for themselves. And then they do it again. And why? Is it because they're just so incorrigible? Because they're just such a flunky with God? No, it's because they're human. They're just human. Ask anybody who's tried to control a temper or a loose tongue, or check a wandering eye. On and on we could go, just ask yourself. Just take an honest, personal inventory of your stock, morally, relationally, your beliefs. Isn't it true that you often never feel a greater draw to what's not right than when you're trying to do its opposite? Where are all these catfish coming from? Paul will address this later in Romans 7. I know the right thing. I know it because the law names it for me. The law tells me what sin is. That's the purpose of the law. I know what the right thing is. And yet, what does he say in Romans 7? Sin is always surfacing. And that doesn't mean we cannot do right. We can do right. We don't have to be slaves to our baser interests. 
We can succeed in righteousness. That's why the Holy Spirit of God indwells and fills us for that very purpose and to, and to keep bringing the truth of Christ to our minds that, that I don't have to be enslaved to my baser drives. But we can't do right like Jesus did right. And His righteousness is the standard. His works are the works by which all works are measured. With God, that's the way it is. There was only one who lived, verse 7 and verse 10, flawlessly. We have not set ourselves to, by patience and well-doing or by persistence and well-doing, seeking glory and honor and immortality. We've not done that exclusively without faults. We know in our conscience we should, but even the best person in the room here, and it certainly isn't me, has his or her faults. I mean, look at verse, even look at verse 13, how verse 13 reads. Look at it, verse 13. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And yet the law included offering sacrifices for sin, didn't it? Sins willful and unintentional both. Stuff I'm aware of and not. To give the bulls and the goats and the doves back in the day was to keep the law, but at the same time, in the very act of giving the sacrifices, I'm confessing that I'm a lawbreaker. That I'm, that I'm not in the core of my being uh, this wonderful person. I may not be as bad as I could be, but I am for myself. Remember this from last week? I am, sin, sin is self-righteousness. Is that I am for myself in a way that, that shows up in sin always being an option. The purpose of the law, as Paul will address this in chapter 6 and 7, it's to teach me my sin. It's to show me that I have sin. Verses 7 and 10 here in chapter 2, verses 7 and 10 in chapter 2 are giving us a hypothetical in service to a larger point. If you got it right all the time, if you did good consistently, nary a lapse into badness or lack of judgment or negligence of good in any way at any time, congratulations. You've got eternal life for yourself. It's just a logical argument. Because, why? Because God judges us by our works. And so it follows. If our works pass his muster, he gives you his life. But what's the gospel? (laughs) Why the gospel? Why did Jesus come? Why did God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ? Why grace? Because our best is never best enough. Our good is never as good as his. It wasn't. It isn't. It won't be. It couldn't be. This is a universal truth, and it is confirmed daily, even on our best days. I'm not saying you're bad people. I'm saying that sin goes deeper in us than we know. We don't know half of our sin. We don't know a quarter of it. One day in here, I was feeling really Augustinian, and I said something in effect, we don't know 1% of our sin. Sin is self-righteousness against oneself. It is hard to detect. But we begin to detect it when we try so hard to do good. And and in that attempt, we find the the bad. I'm oversimplifying it, but for sake of of getting this, we find the bad surfacing. And it sends us into a crisis. Or it sends us into uh, covering ourselves instead of sending us back to the Savior. Back to the cross. 
The essence of self-righteousness is I want to be my own savior. The essence of self-righteousness against myself is realizing I can't be when I'm honest and yet still trying to be, still hoping my works are gaining for me God's acceptance. We see this, this is the drivetrain of Mormonism. This is the drivetrain of Jehovah's Witness. That's why they're out there proselytizing. I have to be good enough. I have to earn this. And we see it in ourselves too. It's here among us as well. God's acceptance of you necessarily requires forgiveness. And forgiveness logically requires something to be forgiven of. And I can't, I can't right my wrongs and my non-rights, my passivity. I can't right this myself. Even if I have to die in my sins, that doesn't, that doesn't right my wrongs against him. That just means I, I got the just penalty for my sin visited upon me. But the work of sin in the self-righteous category is to convince us we can somehow still be good enough for God. This is sin as self-righteousness against oneself. What did Jesus do about it? Verse 7. He, by patience in well-doing, sought for glory and honor and immortality for us on our behalf. The law is in our hearts by conscience, as verse 15 says, but it was in Jesus' heart by love and obedience. Our consciences accuse us when we get it wrong and, and defend us when we get it right. Paul speaks to that here, but Jesus' love for his Father and his obedience to him, it was never wrong. It was always motivated from the, from the place of love for him and desire to honor and glorify his name flawless that's why you get life with God and that's why sin as self-righteousness against ourselves can be forgiven because our judgment day was the cross and the life he lived leading up to that was the life we should have lived but cannot and he died the death he shouldn't die but did for us that's the gospel. It's good news for those who sin self-righteously against themselves as in every other direction. Stand with me. We're going to sing a song after I pray.